So a sacred view of self-worth. This is the topic I've selected to preach on today. Now, if I were to ask you, what kind of car do you drive? You wouldn't say to me, well, I drive a metal car with four wheels. You would say, I drive a Mazda or a Ford or a Chevy or a Chrysler or a Toyota. If I ask you what kind of car you drive, you always, always, always identify the make, often the model and often the year, but minimally the make. You tell me I drive a Ford or I drive a GMC or whatever it might be. And that's because the make and model tells the questioner something about the car that you drive. If you say I drive A and you fill in the blanks, I have a mental image of the car that we're talking about. Now, secular people talk a lot about humans, about themselves. But it's interesting that they incessantly refuse to identify the maker. They talk about themselves, but they don't want to talk about their true origin. They don't want to talk about their maker. And so when you ask the question then, well, who defines us? If I'm a human, but I'm not going to define my maker, who defines me? Who defines you? You see, if we don't look beyond ourselves to define ourselves, we only have one other option, to look within. And this is what secular humanism encourages humanity to do. If you want to understand what kind of human you are, look within. You don't need to look beyond. You don't need to consider your maker. And as a result of decades and decades, in fact, several centuries now, of humanism rising and rising in our culture and becoming the dominant view in the West, that the person that defines you is you. If you want to discover who you are, look within. Because this has become the dominant worldview, human beings have become obsessed with navel-gazing, with looking within. We love to contemplate ourselves. We love to talk about ourselves. We love to assess ourselves. But without acknowledging our maker, our designer, our creator, we're just left alone in our own crazy imaginations to concoct answers to the questions that we all seek out, like, who am I? as a human being? Am I valuable? And if I am, who determines my value? What is my relationship to the other? What has happened in our culture is humanism has created generations of people that are incredibly self-absorbed. Now, we may not always be conscious of this in the front of our mind, but in the back of our mind, we think more about ourselves than probably any generation in the history of the world. And even when we ask questions about who am I, what's my value, what's, we, we look within for those answers. Self-absorption is the secularist's only mean to, means to self-discovery. Now, let me just illustrate this for you. And I'm just going to give you a very short, you're going to think it's long, but it's a very short list 
of vocabulary that modern man uses to define himself. When we speak of ourselves, this is just a short list. I could have found many, many more. You've heard every one of these, I can guarantee it. We talk about self-worth, the ideal self, self-esteem, self-image, self-actualization, self-regard, self-monitoring, self-respect, self-concept, self-identity, self-love, self-acceptance. Now, what's the common commonality in all of those issues? Self. Isn't it amazing how often the word self comes into discussions about self? It does because most in our culture are disinterested in their maker. They don't look beyond. They just look to self in order to find worth, in order to conceive of who they are, in order to find love, in order to find identity. Now, folks, these are, these are profound conversations. Conversations about identity aren't exactly pablum-level conversations. Who you are is rather significant. It's a significant question for you to consider. But again, the world says if you want to find the answer to all of these different things, you don't need to look to the Bible. You just need to look to yourself. Now, what's sad about this is this worldview has leaked into and thoroughly saturated the church of Jesus Christ around the world. So you, you listen to Christian counselors. You listen to them carefully as they counsel you on the radio or through podcasts or sitting in their offices. You listen carefully to how Christian parents raise their children. You listen carefully to how pastors try to love on their people. And many of these concepts have leaked into the church. What we need in our youth group is to help our kids have more self-esteem. You know, if you, if you want to help your child work through this trial or temptation, you need to help them find their self-worth. The, these concepts are not biblical. The Bible never speaks of self-worth. The Bible never speaks of self-esteem, but we've heard it so much, we almost assume, well, it must be there someplace, you know, in the 67th book of the Bible or something. Now, there are implications to this. This is more than philosophy. If your life is all about yourself, and if it's you that defines you, and if I want to answer life's big questions, I just look within. If that's true, then what are some of the implications of that? How, how, do, I, how do I find worth and value? Well, here's what I'm left with. It's found in my productivity. It's found in my productivity, so I'm going to work hard to impress you to get ahead in life. Or it's found in my sexual capacity. Do you desire me? And this is why we have so many in our culture who spend inordinate amounts of time decking themselves up and dressing themselves up 
working out, running, not because they want to be good stewards of their body, but because they, their identity is found in their capacity to draw attention to their physique. Or others find it in their ability to entertain. Do I make you laugh? Do you think I'm funny? Do you want to be around me? Still others find it in their bizarre behavior. I mean, you got some people out there that are just downright weird. They're just weird. And many of them have become specialists at being weird and bizarre because that's their way of drawing attention from others. If I can dress way outside the box, if I can tat myself up from head to toe way out in a way that is bizarre, if I can act and live a lifestyle that's just off the wall, maybe I'll get some attention from people. Others seek to find it in political office. Are you impressed with the high office that I hold, with the power that I wield? And then others, and this is where it maybe hits a little closer to home, can even seek to find their identity in their religious commitment. Does my righteousness one-up you? Does, are you impressed with how righteous I am? These, these outlooks on life are the result of a me-oriented, self-interested culture. Again, the Bible never speaks of self-worth. It never speaks of self-esteem. In fact, it's just a foreign idea to Scripture. It's not even addressed in the Bible which, by the way, probably says something about our modern mindset and the fact that we have too much time in our hands to deal with many of these first world ways of thinking. But I want to ask you this question. If you're here today and you're a Christian counselor, maybe not with a capital C, but you give people advice, or you've been to a Christian counselor and you've heard these lies whispered in your ear, the solution to your problem, your addiction, your issues you got a self-esteem issue. You weren't affirmed enough in the church you grew up in, or your parents didn't affirm you enough, and you just kind of need to realize that, and we'll run some tests on you and help you to overcome it. Or if you're a parent, and you're seeking to raise children that think biblically, and you're reading the psychology text, and you're listening to the media, and you're letting the guidance counselor tell you how to raise your kids. Or if you're a pastor, a teacher in the church, and you want people to think clearly about who they are, I want you to ask this question. Is it possible that you've adopted some of these categories of secular humanism into your worldview? And how's that working for you? It doesn't seem to me the world's getting much better. We're not producing better generations of conscientious, generous, self-serving, God-loving people we're increasingly pumping out of our schools and our households people that are as, about as godless as you can possibly get in terms of your thinking. Even in the church, many people come to church and it's about them. To many in the church today, not labeling anyone in our beloved church, of course, this is a show. I'm the performer. The worship team's the performer, and you come and you pay for a service. You're a customer. You're a client of the church. 
This is the mindset that many people have. It's like, I don't, I don't know about that. Well, just look at how people act. Oh, you're not meeting my needs? I'm leaving. I attend. I don't serve. I don't have time for serving. I don't give. I just, I just come and I'm faithful. I'm here, but I don't actually participate in my life of the church. Many Christians cannot think beyond themselves. And the reason for this is precisely because they think too much of themselves. It's the way it works. If all you're doing is thinking about yourself, you're never going to be able to think beyond yourself. And so we're hyper self-protective. We're hyper self-absorbed. We're hyper self-interested. And unfortunately, a large swath of the Church of Jesus Christ has bowed and buckled to the secular humanist mindset and actually cater to this lie. So what I'd like to do is take us to several passages of the Bible. Normally, I, I prefer to preach from one meaty passage of the Bible, but these are more topical messages, and so I need to touch down on several passages. And I want to ask some pro- simple but profound questions of Scripture that will help us to answer the question, who am I? How do, where do I find my value and my worth as a human being? What the Bible does is it fills in the void of secularism with meaningful, usable answers. First question I'd like to ask is, who am I? Now, you don't have to go very far in the Bible to answer that question. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says, so God never takes time to try to defend the existence of God. Notice that in Scripture, in this very rational, empirical, evidentialist culture that we live. We're always looking for someone to tell us, why does prove to me that God exists? The Bible doesn't even bother trying. It just assumes and presumes and presupposes that God exists. And when you start with that presupposition, everything else starts to fall into place and make sense. So God created man in his own image. <clears throat> in the image of God, he created him. So we're kind of told the same thing two different ways. And in case you think it's just for guys, it says male and female, he created them. Now we could talk extensively about this theology of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. But very briefly, to be made in the image and likeness of God means that like God, you have the capacity for relationships with other beings, including with God. Secondly, To be made in the image and likeness of God means that you have dominion over creation. You're his steward. You have a management portfolio. You are called to represent God in the world. Now, sin has marred that and mucked it up. But the church, excuse me, is called to represent Christ. That's why we're called the body of Christ. This is more than just fancy language. It actually is language that helps us to understand our identity. It means, thirdly, that you are an eternal being. You did have a starting point. God doesn't. But you will exist forever. From the moment you're conceived, you will exist forever. Obviously, we're existing right now on this planet and eternally will exist in the eternal kingdom or an eternal damnation, but you have eternality. Your horse doesn't have that. Your cat doesn't have that. Your goldfish doesn't have that, but you do. 
And fourth, you reflect God's character in person if you're functioning properly into the world. So this is what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. And that's pretty fascinating. Now, the humanist, the secularist, attempts to convince you that you can actually be satisfied, listen carefully, especially the young people, you can be satisfied by being satisfied with yourself. You can be, you can be the person that you're called and designed to be simply by becoming more and more content and satisfied with you. So we hear slogans like, you be you. It's a stupid slogan, but if you hear it enough, people believe it. You don't require outside approval. You hear that? You don't, don't, don't let other people define you. Now, let me just make an applicational point because this will save many of you from a life of great disappointment. One of the ways that this is demonstrated is in the lie, you can do whatever you want in life. You hear that? Parents even tell their kids, you can, Levi, you can do whatever you want in life. No, you can't. Because there's many things you'll be terrible at. You don't have the money to do. You stink at it. You don't have the mind for it. You're not athletic enough for it or whatever it might be. I can't do, it's like I wake up in the morning, you know what I'm going to do? I'm 47 years old. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to be a 100-meter sprinter in the next Olympic Games. Okay, folks, that will never happen. I can try. I can work for it. But I'm limited by this. It'll never happen. But we tell you, if you want to be a doctor, you can be a doctor. Yeah, but maybe they don't have the capacity to do that. Or you want to go into the trades, be a tradesman. Maybe they don't have the mind for that. You cannot do anything that you set your mind to. But this lie, it's very strange. It's, self, it's a self-evident lie. We all know it's a lie, if we actually think for a moment. But we, have this, we, we tell kids this lie all the time. You can do whatever you want. Instead of helping them to understand their strengths and their weaknesses and pushing them toward their strengths and helping them to be okay with the fact that you will never be good at certain things. So stay in your lane. But the humanist says, if you want to be satisfied with yourself, you don't need to look for outside approval. Now what's the result? The result of this is, that means your life only matters temporarily. The result is, sin is minimized. Don't worry about your own deficits. The result is there's no need for God's approval. The result is radical self-reliance. You see how what we think actually affects the trajectory of our lives? It really does. So this is why we need to get it right. A sacred view is, no, you're, you're valued as an image bearer of God. And even if you've sinned and you're destined toward damnation, you can find approval by God by surrendering yourself to your maker, acknowledging your source, and serving him. And in that loving relationship, God will satisfy you in ways that no other being or organization or opportunities can ever satisfy. And it's like, wow. Now what's the result of that? 
Well, now I can live my life realizing my life matters eternally. I am a steward, not an owner. Ownership is the enemy of stewardship, but stewardship frees me to manage and live my life in a fulfilling, truly satisfying way as a creature. I am a creature under a benevolent creator. It also encourages me to address sin and turn from it, realizing it's destructive. Back to the car illustration. If you drive a Ford, there are some individuals that are much more skilled and smart than you that know exactly how that vehicle was developed. And they give you an owner's manual. And in the owner's manual, it says, change the oil, X number of kilometers. And then it tells you what kind of oil. And say, well, what do they know? I'm gonna totally disregard the manufacturer, not even think about the manufacturer. I'm gonna decide what goes into my car, and frankly, right now, milk's on sale, so a little cheaper than synthetic oil, so I'm putting milk in it. Or they say inflate the tires to 35 PSI, whatever. I'm going to go with 100. It's a nice round number. You cannot do with your car whatever you want. You have to follow the manufacturer's advice. And in the same way, you are created. You are manufactured by God. God knows what's best for you. You don't know what's best for you apart from revelation given to you by God. And we happen to have a bit of an owner's manual going on here as well. And when we follow him, even if it's like, I don't really want to, on the other side of obedience is always, 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 always blessing and satisfaction. Now, most of us will live about 26,000 days and then we die. Every day you live, where you don't understand this, you've just wasted a day. And those days can add up pretty quick. You know, you're, you're motoring through 365 of them every year. And if you buy into the, the humanist, secularist mindset, you are literally wasting your life pursuing that which does not satisfy. So make sure you understand who you are. Now there's a follow-up question to this. Okay, I understand who I am, but what happened to me? Why is it that I live in a broken world? What happened to Aaron Rock? Now the secularist doesn't really want you to even think about that. Nothing happened to you. If you have any deficits in life, the solution is embrace yourself. Look within. Find the inner good. Love yourself. Just be you. (laughs) They don't want you to actually acknowledge that you have a problem and I have a problem. So they just kind of cover it up with all these niceties. Now you might think, if you're trying to understand a little bit about human nature, that you have to wait till Paul starts writing stuff, right? I mean, Jesus didn't say much about it. You've got to go to Romans. But actually, Jesus says a thing or two about human nature. And did you know that Jesus, like Paul, had a very pessimistic view of humanity apart from God? 
Did you know that? In John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Jesus is in this dialogue with uh, some of his opponents, and it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about men. Listen to this. For he himself knew what was in man. He knew about the sin. He knew about the deception. He knew about the confusion that was in man. And then Paul says in Romans 3, many of you know this, verses 10, 11, 12, pretty, pretty dramatic. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I had a guy trying to argue with me that this doesn't mean what I'm saying it means. Well, it means what it's saying it means. No one, all, no one, not even one. I mean, it's, <laughs> the verse is mildly repetitive to get the point across that if you even start to think, yeah, but maybe I'm an exception to the rule. No, you're not. Yeah, but I met a really nice, no. No one. It's very categorical. Very categorical. Now, it's true that we do good as measured against scriptural precepts, as measured against societal expectations, as measured against family of origin values. It's true that people who are sinners do good. But what the Bible helps us to understand is it's never meritorious. You don't get one single grade for it from God. Nor is it ever really uncorrupted by sin. So deep down, your generosity apart from Christ is motivated somewhere down deep inside of your mind and heart by something evil. Maybe you want to pat yourself on the back or you want to look religious, or you're looking for attention, or you want to overcome your shame, or whatever it might be. Deep down in the heart of man, there is great evil. Looking within to find meaning, to find goodness, is kind of like going to the garbage dump for groceries. Are you going to find a few things that are edible? Yeah. Could you live off a garbage dump for a long time? Probably. But those scraps and those leftovers are all corrupt. They're unsafe. They're bacteria laden. And they will not ultimately nourish you. They'll probably take your life. And that's what human good deeds are like. They're like eating food at the garbage dump. Yeah, there, there's some goodness that, that comes out of us but it's always bacteria-laden. It's always infected by sin. So, <laughs> what we actually need, contrary to what you've been taught growing up in your public schools and from the world this week, what we actually need is a more pessimistic view of humanity. That's what we need. Not a more optimistic view. We need a more pessimistic view of human nature in order to discover an optimistic future. The secularist says, no, no, no. If you want an, 
if you want to be optimistic about the future, you need to be optimistic about yourself. Is this resonating? If you, if you want to embrace your future, move in the right direction, you need to deal with your self-esteem issue. You need a positive mindset. You know, the power of positive thinking. I can do whatever I want. It's a lie. It's a lie. An optimistic future is predicated upon a, upon a pessimistic view of yourself. So let's kind of unpack this a little further because this raises questions like, well, does that mean God hates my guts? Well, read on in scripture Let's ask the question, how much does God value me in my brokenness, in my sin? How much does God value humanity? Not even talking about the church, the believers. How much does God value humanity? Luke 12, 24 says, consider the ravens. Look to the birds. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Now, is this like limited to believers? No. Matthew 5, 45 says, For he that is God, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, by the way, that is in the context, if you read Matthew 5, of loving your enemies. So God's like, love your enemies, love your enemies. And then he basically points to himself and says, hey, don't, don't I love on my enemies? Don't I provide rain for my enemies? Don't I provide sun for my enemies? So what this does is this lets us in to this notion that God feeds, sustains, and on some level blesses all people. Both those that have repented and those that have not yet repented those that are found and those that are lost. Why does God bless all people on some level? Because human life, apparently, is precious to God. And if you're listening to me today, you're a human. And that includes you. So this is fascinating that God loves people broadly, specifically, obviously, and most pointedly through this person and work of Jesus Christ and our salvation. But even before being, being born again, you've been loved by God more than you probably have ever thought about. Your existence is a loving act from God. Now, if you think about that, then it's like, you know what? Yeah, that, that whole self-love message that I've grown up on, that starts to sound kind of cheap. That's kind of chintzy. This is fascinating because self-love, if, if the message is, well, the reason why I'm feeling good about life is because I love myself. This incestuous kind of love. It's like, yeah, that's, that's nothing special. But when I hear the message, what, God? I, I'm, I'm a sinner, but God? The divine, infinite, loving other with a capital O loves me? provides for me, doesn't have to, but does. It's like, wow, this starts to put perspective on. This starts to help me to understand my value in the eyes of God. My value then is not based apparently on my performance. 
The general love of God for humanity is not based on our what? Performance. It reigns in the just and the unjust. The saving love of God in Christ is not based on our what? Our performance. Like this should stir your heart. This should give you a perspective on life that pushes you toward meaning and a sense that, wow, like I better, I better respond in some way. I, if this is true, there's a, the Bible presents a pessim, I made in the image of God. The Bible presents a very pessimistic view of me, but God still loves me generally and specifically in Christ. I better start thinking about how I'm going to live my life. And let me share with you an A, a B, and a C in terms of how you might consider acting. So how do I then act having come to a proper understanding of who I am and why God made me? Well, first of all, I need to assess. It says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, if then you've been raised with Christ, which you have, if you're a Christian, you have, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. So in other words, I need to start seeking, I need to start living my life for eternal pursuits. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden, this is beautiful language, is hidden with Christ in God. That's language of security. And it's language of comfort. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. So you have it now, and you're still waiting for the full manifestation of it in the future. You have life hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ comes back, you're going to experience it in all of its fullness. So assess yourself. Have I been living my life with an over-the-sun and eternal perspective? Or did I just blow another week? Living in the here and now, looking for you to give me attention, looking for you to affirm me, looking within to try to conjure up some sort of self-esteem. If I did, I just blew another week. But I need to set my mind on that which is eternal. So that's the A. The B is bless. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you... Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are incredibly self-interested. I mean, you could have twin babies that spent nine months in the womb together. And they're born. And before long, they're fighting over their toys. They're fighting for their parents' attention. I mean, how much closer do you get than twins? We are not outward-oriented by nature. We are inward-oriented. And the world just helps that, just pours it on. Hey, that's a good thing to be. Just look within, look in yourself. We don't need that message. The problem is we look too much to the inside of ourselves. We need to learn to look out, to be a blessing, to look to the interests of other people. This is the pattern of behavior that Jesus Christ so awesomely established for us. C, confidence. 
we can live our lives confident. So I want to share two passages, one from Hebrews chapter 13 and one that I'm sure many of you have read from Romans 8. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said. So where's contentment found? It's a call to be content, but it's like, well, how do I get there? Okay, I want that. I don't want to be bogged down in the pursuit of money. So what's the key that unlocks that door and allows me to go into this room marked contentment? What is it? Well, it's this statement. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Sometimes we forsake God for periods of time, but God never forsakes his own. Never. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So we can confidently say, the passage goes on in verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Not, I will not fear because I have a great self-esteem. And I have accomplished so much in life. I will not fear because God is my helper. My confidence is rooted in one beyond me, not within me. This is the biblical mindset that we need to adopt. And then in Romans 8, 38, 39, this is another verse of great confidence. For I am sure... That's a pretty significant word. That neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation. You know that other verse where oh, there's a lot of no's, no, no. This is another repetitive verse. <laughs> so you can't miss the point. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. Not war, not famine, not viruses, not divorce, not disease, not death, not rulers, not principalities, not even you, because you're part of creation too, can separate you from the love of God in Christ. This is where our confidence is found, church. So, apparently, you're not who you think you are. And you are not who you want yourself to be. Instead, you're created by, you are defined by, and you are treasured by the eternal God. Let his truth inform your thinking. And let his love encourage you forever. <laughs> 